and welcome to Military History Inside Out, brought to you by War Scholar. We talk about military history from ancient times to modern and everything in between. I'm Chris Alvarez, and today's guest is Boaz Devere, who talks about the creation of the Israeli Air Force and the 1948 Arab-Israeli War. Thank you for listening. I'm speaking with Boaz Devere, author of Saving Israel, The Unknown Story of Smuggling Weapons and Winning a Nation's Independence, published by Stackpole Books, January 2020. Thank you for speaking with me. Thank you, Chris. It's a pleasure. So first, um, how did you get into studying and writing on this subject? It came out of a conversation with my grandfather. My mother's parents were Holocaust survivors, and they never wanted to talk about it. And my grandmother died at the age of 53. I'm about to turn 53. Hmm. Seems even more surreal now, obviously. But even then, as a kid, it seemed tragic that she went away and went to her grave with that, that side of the family story gone, because hmm. we did not know it. She was the only member of that side of the family to have survived. She was a survivor of Auschwitz. And all we knew were just a few basic facts. He came from Czechoslovakia, but beyond that, we didn't know much. So I was determined to get my grandfather to talk. He refused. I camped out at his place. And finally, finally, after a few days of me following him around, he broke down and he spoke for four days straight. And during that, you know, just outpouring of, of his life story, he obviously told me many things. But one, one thing in particular got me started on the journey that led to the documentary and then to this book. And that is, he mentioned that when they were in a displaced person camp, he and his wife and had twins, mm -hmm. one of whom was my mom, they obviously wanted a better life. And my grandmother wanted to go to America and he wanted to go to Palestine and, and help fight for the creation of the Jewish state. And my grandmother said, are you crazy? We just survived one Holocaust and you want to volunteer for another? Hmm. No, we have to go to America. So when they boarded the ship on the Mediterranean, she thought they were going to America. That's what he told her. Hmm. Lo and behold, when she didn't see the Statue of Liberty and instead saw some Israeli flags waving in the distance, she became suspicious. But it was a bit late because as soon as they arrived, he was whisked off to fight. The war was already on. This was 1948. As soon as Israel declared independence, its neighbors attacked. Hmm. And it was really, you know, fighting for its existence, fighting for its survival. Every able-bodied uh, man was, was sent to war. He was sent to the desert. And he arrives and he joins his platoon in the Negev. Fairly excited, right? Because this is his opportunity as a Holocaust survivor to defend himself, to defend his family, to defend his homeland. Now his new homeland, his kids. But lo and behold, when he gets there, he thinks, oh, no, this is where I'm going to die. Because his platoon of 30 men had only about five or six rifles. They just didn't have enough, and, and only enough bullets, uh, rounds of ammunition, maybe to last a couple of battles. Hmm. And then one day, rifles arrive, and he signs for his, and he takes it, and he grips it, and he's so excited because he finally really now has a chance to do something and fight. And he looks closely into the middle of his rifle, and what does he see? He sees an engraving of a German eagle with little swastikas in its talons. Okay. So my grandfather stops the story and says uh, to me, Boaz, I was a journalist, uh, mm. still to a large degree I am today, he says, uh, do you know how we 
ended up fighting with Nazi weapons. I told him, no, I had never heard of it, but uh, give me a couple of days and I'll find out. Well, it took me about 10 years, but the book <laughs> is basically the answer to that question. Mm -hmm. Now, for listeners, can you give a background before we get into this, um, I'll call it an operation, to um, supply this new Israeli uh, military can you give a background on what precipitated the crisis, the whole independence and the UN's involvement and all that? Just kind of a brief synopsis. Yeah, you know, uh, as brief as I can, of course, the Jews were in this land, the holy land that later became Palestine and now is mostly known as Israel. And I guess, depending on, on, on which side you're on, either the occupied territories or Palestine, um, the Jews had been there for thousands of years, but of course were exiled started to come back in the 19th century, but the return to their ancient homeland they didn't gain a great deal of traction, and it will take a long time to explain as to why, until after World War II. Mm -hmm. After World War II, after the Holocaust, you had about between 250,000 and 300,000 survivors in Europe, and they had nowhere to go. No one wanted them. America didn't want them. England didn't want them. France didn't want them. No one wanted them. And many of them were kept in the same camps in which they were held by the Nazis. And they were no longer being gassed, mm -hmm. right, or, or being forced to, uh, to you know, uh, to labor. But they were stuck. And the only entity that wanted them was the Jewish community of Palestine. Mm -hmm. And that accelerated this idea of taking that piece of land and dividing it between the Jews and the Arabs, mm -hmm. which the UN decided to do in 1947, in November of 1947. That was the deal. Let's split it. The Jews said, thank you, we'll take it. The Arabs said, no, why should we take half? And the Arabs had had the reasons. You know, they felt we're only being offered, in a sense, actually even less than technically 50%. And yet Arabs make up two thirds of the population of Palestine. Seems unfair. Also, all these other countries, you know, what are they really doing? They don't want to take these refugees, so they're dumping them on us. Mm -hmm. Felt like colonialism to the Arabs. And the Arabs also, on a practical level, said, we don't need to accept this deal. We don't need to accept half the land when we have the military power to take the whole thing. Mm -hmm. The British had been controlling the land since, you know, um, 1917, I believe. And they were leaving as part of this agreement, they were, they were out. They were gone. They were going to leave on May 15th, 1948. And the Arabs said, as soon as they leave, uh, May 14th, 1948, the Arabs said, as soon as they leave, we're just going to step in. Mm -hmm. and, and in fact, that's what happened. On the morning of May 15th, after the British left and after Israel declared independence, five neighboring militaries invaded. So that, in a gist, is the overview or the background of, of what took place. Okay. So then let's talk about, uh, talk about the subject of the book, um, the individuals involved and in what it is they, they planned to and did do to um, change the situation. Right. So I'll, I'll give you kind of a summary, and then maybe we can dive into a few of them a little deeper if you like. Sure. These were mostly Americans. They were mostly aviators. Uh, all of them had served during World War II uh, at a minimum for a couple of years, in some cases more. Some of them even stayed on past 1945. For instance, a couple of them helped 
to transfer certain military assets to allies around the globe, they had paid their dues and they were back, right? They were back after many years of fighting, having lost friends, having risked their lives, and they were starting new lives. They were going to college, um, pretty much almost any college you can think of um, that's well known is probably represented among the eventually 300 people who joined the operation. The mm. core group, obviously, in the beginning was smaller, but it eventually became quite a large operation with many facets to it. And so they were going to college, they were getting married, they were having kids, they were starting businesses. Many of them got jobs in aviation, uh, working for airlines such as TWA, which no longer exists. And they did not need to prove anything. There was there, there was no need for them to pay their dues. They had done it. Mm. If there ever was a generation that had done its part, it was them. You know, We're not being asked to do our part now, and I don't want to diminish it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, what are we being asked to do? Wear masks? Stay at home? Mm-hmm. They were asked to, you know, go rest their lives in, in, in far away places, many of which they had never held before, mm-hmm. you know, and fight a ruthless enemy on many fronts. They came back, they were starting to life. What would prompt them to not only put all of that aside again, not only to risk their lives again, but to do it now for a foreign entity? Right. It wasn't the government sending them to make it even more kind of mind boggling. They were doing it against their own government's wishes. Their own government was very clear and we can get into the details. They did not want anyone, meaning any American citizen, to get involved in any way, shape or form in the war that was beginning in the Middle East. And the U.S. had good reasons from its own interest to say, stay put. It reactivated the Neutrality Act, for example, to make sure that Americans did not get involved. So it was illegal. So these people, and at the time, you could lose your American citizenship, unlike today, which you can't. Mm. But, you know, so they didn't just risk losing their lives or going to prison. They risked losing their citizenship, and they were doing something against their own government. And keep in mind, these were patriotic people, right? Mm. I mean, this was the greatest generation. They fought in World War II. They knew which side was right. They knew which side was wrong. They knew the Americans were on the right side. They believed in their country. They loved their country. And now they decided to go against it. So what could possibly cause that? Mm. Yeah. And what caused that is the landscape, the geopolitical landscape. It was clear to them, and actually at the time clear to everyone, that the 600,000 Jews living in Palestine had no chance to survive. I'm speaking to Boaz Devere author of Saving Israel. You can find more information on Twitter or Facebook at Boaz DeVere. If you like this podcast so far, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. Please go to my Facebook page, War Scholar, to find links to interesting military history videos created by others. Please go to my Twitter page at War Scholar for links to military history news, military history archaeology news, and academic military history articles. Please check out my Instagram page, Chris Alvarez War Scholar, for photos. Please check out my YouTube channel, War Scholar 1945, for military history videos I've made. You can also sign up for my newsletter at warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com. In the newsletter, I post video and news links, as well as regular updates on new military history books being published. 
If you're interested in other kinds of history, such as film, TV, books, and comic books history, including science fiction, fantasy, and horror themes, or the history of outer space exploration, you can find the links to my other podcasts and associated book lists at historyrabbithole.com. That's rabbit as in the animal. Historyrabbithole.com. Thank you for your support. And now back to the podcast. Now, the enemies of, of the 600,000 Jews were saying that they were gonna, really going to annihilate them. They were making statements like, we'll sweep the Jews to the sea. We will complete what Hitler started. Hmm. We will finish the final solution, etc., etc. These militaries, the neighboring militaries, had the means to do it. Because hmm. not only did they have a lot of manpower, but they were fully equipped by the West, particularly the United Kingdom, but also France. And of course, in Saudi Arabia's case, although they played a very minor role, but still, to some degree, they were beginning to acquire some very few American weapons, not that much at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but England, in particular, not only equipped these, particularly three of the of the five militaries, the Iraqis, Transjordanians, and the Egyptians, but also trained them. And in many cases, led them into battle, provide them intelligence. Their officers, in a sense, the British officers were part of the Transjordanian military. So they were a mighty force. They had very good reasons to believe that they could go in. Now, would they have done that? Would the Arabs actually have fulfilled these threats to actually annihilate these 600,000 people or a good percentage of them? Mm -hmm. I honestly don't know. I don't know. But it doesn't matter what I think. What matters is what these guys thought, right? These American aviators back in the late 40s. Mm -hmm. By the way, not all Jewish. It was a mix of Jews and non-Jews. Okay. And not all coming in for the same reason. They had all, and we can talk about that. What were the the specific motivations? But overall, what drove all of them, what drove the operation was the idea that the 600,000 people stood a real chance of being wiped out. They believed the statements because they had seen what happened in Europe. They knew it, it was possible right. that something like this could happen, right? And they didn't want to take it lightly this time. They wanted to do what they could to save lives. That's what it was about. It was a race to save lives. Who was the, uh, who was the individual that first started what, what, uh, what they did? Was there one person or uh, an organization? There was very much one person. His name was Adolf, believe it or not, Adolf Schwimmel. Mm-hmm. He went by Al. And he was a flight engineer. He was an ordinary guy. He, he, he had dreams of owning an airline, but there was nothing in his life that indicated he was going to do anything extraordinary. I mean, he was a good flight engineer, and he served this country well. He was part of the American Air uh, Transport Command. But, you know, he never even saw action. And as far as he was Jewish, but as far as Jewish side, I mean, he knew that he was Jewish, but he he had no strong connection to it, no real passion for it, mm-hmm. um, no real strong opinions about the creation of Israel. He wasn't involved in any Zionist organization. He came into this through a different mean. He, he traveled quite a bit. He was part of, as I mentioned, the ATC. And then soon after the end of the war, he shifted back to TWA. TWA had become part of the ATC during the war and then shifted to civilian. And he he was with them the whole time. And he spent a lot of time in Europe. His mom had asked him, find out what happened to our relatives, which he he did, you know, as soon as, as the war ended. 
in May of 1945. And then, of course, on the European side, it was still continuing in the Pacific until uh, early September. But he discovered that his family there perished, that they died in the Nazi concentration camps. And he visited a couple of the camps uh, like Bergen-Belsen. And he was horrified because you go to Bergen-Belsen, which was a, a Nazi concentration camp after the war, and yeah, the Nazi flags are gone and the Nazi guards are gone, but they're replaced by British guards. And yeah, the, the inmates are no longer facing death on a daily basis, but they're still held behind barbed wire. Many of them still wearing the striped uniforms. Others now suddenly wearing the Nazi uniforms. Mm-hmm. Um, they still did not receive adequate nutrition uh, or opportunity. They were locked like animals. They were treated like animals. In some cases, in some of these camps, their former Nazi guards were now also imprisoned by the Allies, but because of their, quote, logistical experience, were put in charge of the camp still. Can you imagine? No, that's, uh, yeah, no, I can't. Uh, it's it's, it's mind-blowing, and, 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 and it just... Al could not believe what he was seeing. And he said, I got to do something about this. So he tried to find out why are they locked here? And in many cases, locked there for years, for years. And he discovered, as I mentioned earlier, no one wanted to take him except the Palestinian Jewish community. Okay, what's the problem? Here's the problem. The British don't allow these Holocaust survivors to come to Palestine. The British, as I mentioned, control Palestine. Mm-hmm. And they won't allow them to come. The Jews are trying to break the blockade by placing thousands of Holocaust survivors on American, mostly American bought ships, like the most famous one, of course, being the Exodus. Mm-hmm. And the Jews are trying to send them on the Mediterranean to Palestine. But the British Navy and British Air Force, they keep intercepting the ships, you know, and taking them and placing the, the Jews back in camps mostly at this point in Cyprus, but it's the same idea, you know? Mm-hmm. So they're not making it. Only maybe one out of 20 of these ships makes it. Most of them are not. Mm-hmm. So I looks at the situation and says, this is dumb. When you send a ship full of people and it takes them days, right, on the Mediterranean, they're sitting ducks. It's easy for the Royal Air Force, for the Royal Navy to spot them, intercept them, take them. He says, let's fly them in. So he, he goes back to New York and he finds out where the Jewish underground's office is. Mm-hmm. And he visits them and he tells them his idea. He says to them, look, there are demilitarized American transport planes being put up for sale right now because there's too many of them. The government has to unload them. They set up a, an office specifically for that. It was called the War, uh, War Asset Office mm-hmm. in D.C. Okay. And you can pick up this transport, this big transport plane for next to nothing. I suggest you buy them, fix them, or have them fix, and fly the Holocaust survivors in. You fly them in, you get them into the country. Fly them at night, find some secret landing spot, get them in. Makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. Almost impossible to detect that back back in those days. Right, yeah. They didn't listen to him. They were suspicious of him. For one, for one, I mean, a guy named Adolf, who is he? No history of Jewish involvement. It took months to even just kind of do a background check on him. Mm-hmm. And, and the guy in charge, they just didn't click. But the next guy, a man named Yehuda Arazi, 
like a real life we can talk about him for hours a real life james bond okay. he takes the position and he befriends al and he likes his thinking he likes the idea that they at a minimum should set up an airline right the jews need an airline they need something they, they can't just live on 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 rocks they need weapons <laughs> so he says to him you know what i'm going to give you money you start buying these planes you start fixing them I was a little surprised he was just giving them the idea. I didn't realize that he would have to do it. <laughs> yeah. But he's doing it. And then Yehuda Arazi tells him one day, listen, here's what we really need. Bringing in the refugees, yeah, that that's a priority. But we got a bigger priority. We need you to bring in weapons, weapons, mm -hmm. because we don't have enough. We don't have enough. Israel only, had only one rifle for every three or four fighters. Mm -hmm. It had only enough rounds of ammunition to last two days of fighting. Mm -hmm. No matter how good you are, you're not going to win a war if you don't have weapons. And Israel did not have enough machine guns, very, very few, didn't have hardly any tanks, and did not have an air force at all. Nothing. So at this point, what uh, what date are we talking about when he made this proposition? Approximate. Uh, in in well, relation... No, I'm trying to think. I can, I can give you some... It, 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 this is January of, of 1948. Okay, so he's anticipating. So this other individual is anticipating the the problems to come. Everyone knows that Israel is going to be created because in November of 1947, the UN declared that. Mm -hmm. The British are leaving, and, and Israel is going to declare independence. Although some Jews were against it or said delay it, that gets complicated. But the bottom line, especially to someone like Yehuda Alazi, who represents the Jewish underground, is... We're going to have to fight. We're going to declare a state. We're going to have to fight. We don't have the weapons to fight. We don't have the air force to fight. We need to acquire it. And here's the big problem. In the, on December 5th, 1947, the United States announced an arms embargo against selling weapons to the Middle East. Hmm. And soon after, pretty much the rest of the globe followed. Hmm. Uh, England but he had one in place. This is ironic with England placing one because England continued to officially sell weapons to equip and train three of those militaries, as I mentioned, the Egyptians, the Iraqis, and the Transjordanians mm -hmm. under previous agreements. And as if as if that was okay, like there's an, an international embargo, no one's allowed to send anything to the Middle East, mm -hmm. and yet no one says anything about the fact that England is still continuing because they have some sort of agreements with these countries, so that makes it okay. Mm -hmm. Right? I mean, a lot of things seem very strange in retrospect. Who knows what the future will say about us when future historians will look back at our period, for instance. Uh, things that seem normal to us. So, 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 just, yeah. to, so just to mention then, so at this point, uh, the, the airline idea was legal, but now he's asking him to become an arms smuggler, so essentially become an international criminal. Exactly. Exactly. And, and he went a step further than that. That's well put, Chris. That's exactly right. Mm -hmm. Put together an airline or transport plane, no problem. Smuggle, smuggle weapons, that's a different story. And he says to him, uh, you know, no one's selling us any weapons, so we need to try to get them wherever we can. Mm -hmm. So Al and his men start to actively look for weapons. They don't obviously just look for weapons. They look for planes. They need equipment for the planes. They need engines. They need spare parts, etc. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, they find out that there's a Jewish man who owns a junkyard, and we're talking about a massive, massive junkyard, many, many, the size of many football fields, mm -hmm. uh, in Hawaii. And so 
Al sends two of his men there to see if they can buy the equipment. To which the owner of, of these uh, junkyards said, no, I'm not going to sell them to you, but I'm going to give them to you. Because hmm. I believe in what you're doing. Mm-hmm. So they get all the spare parts they need. And in, in, in putting them together, these two men noticed that right next door, there's another big junkyard. This one owned by the Navy and patrolled by the Navy. And it has old weaponry, a lot of machine guns, for instance. So they steal these machine guns. Oh, from boy. The Navy. <laughs> they steal them and they bring them back to California. Ironically, ironically, the spare parts, the engines all get confiscated by the FBI. So all that work goes to nothing. None of it's used. It all, all gets confiscated. Mm-hmm. They get it past the seaport in Los Angeles somehow, get it onto their shop. But once it's in their shop, their FBI uh, snatches it. Mm-hmm. But the FBI never finds out about the weapons. And in fact, in 1950, the leaders, Al Schwimmer and some of these leaders, including the two men who were in Hawaii, are placed on trial. And they face a long list of charges. Missing from them is stealing of the machine guns from the U.S. Navy. Luckily, no one really at the time knew about them. They were able to get away with it. Uh, it would have been very difficult for them to avoid any prison sentencing, which they did finally, if one of the charges were, you stole hundreds of machine guns from the Navy. Mm-hmm. You know, So they did anything and everything they could. They made deals with Mexico to buy weapons. But what Israel needed was really a massive purchase. It, it, it wasn't like a few hundred here or a few even thousand there. They need a uniform system, right? When you have a military and you're trying to win a war, you can't have five or six or 20 different kinds of machine guns and different assortments of different kinds of ammunition. You need a uniform system, mm-hmm. no pun intended. So Israel was desperate. It really needed a country to sell it a, a large cachet of arms. Mm-hmm. And that happened with Czechoslovakia. Czechoslovakia finally agreed to do that mm-hmm. and sell Israel weapons. And so the foresight that Tarazi had and, and Schwimmer had really came into play then because Czechoslovakia was landlocked. The only way to get weapons out of there was really by these big planes. It was in Eastern Europe. It was dangerous. Uh, only a group like Al, experienced aviators, could pull it off. Mm-hmm. So it was really that combination, and of course we can give you a lot more details, that saved Israel. Mm-hmm. So, and just for the sake of time, you know, this is very interesting, but I want to jump to um, a couple questions here. Um, sure. As they, as they were conducting their operations, um, did they... Did they encounter any military resistance along the way? You know, like the the Arab militaries or even the British military. Were there any um, um, any times they they were shot at or anyone shot down or anything like that? They were uh, attacked and shot at and and in action military action type combat from the beginning to the end. Hmm. So the first time they were shot at was when they flew their transport planes. They had 13 of them. Mm -hmm. They managed to get 11 out. When they flew them out in the United States, the FBI was trying to stop them from flying them out of Burbank, California, where they had half of them, and the other half was in Millville, New Jersey. Mm -hmm. And the FBI and the Treasury Department was involved too. The T-men, as they were known, drove up to the tarmac and fired shots at them as they flew away. 
So those were the first shots. The last shots, the last shots came on the very last day of the Arab-Israeli war. The Arab-Israeli war is known as the 1948 war, mm-hmm. but it lasted into 49, into January 49. And on the very, very last day, the air force that these guys built and manned, the, the pilots were mostly them, Mm, meaning they were members of this operation who came from America and and others that they recruited in places like South Africa and England and France, um, and they brought them to Czechoslovakia to train. So these were their men. They were part of the operation, and they then flew these fighter planes during during the war. On the very last day of the war, they came up against, uh, in two separate dogfights, pretty massive dogfights, they came up against really skilled pilots, in the Negev Desert, where my grandfather had been. And they won. They were able to shoot down five, five of these, far more advanced, by the way, planes than the ones they had, mm-hmm. far better planes. And lo and behold, it turned out that all five were not flown by Egyptians. They were flown by British pilots. Oh, wow. Yeah. And England was not happy and threatened to... You know, just when the war was ending, mm-hmm. to start it anew and this time jump in fully and fight Israel itself because they were really angry that they had lost those five planes. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the operation members said they didn't know. I mean, to them, the British were like brothers. I mean, they had fought with them during World War II. Mm-hmm. They didn't want to shoot them down, but, you know, they had no choice. So they did it. Yeah. And in between, I mean, yes, they were they were <laughs> they were shot at, arrested, uh, held up. I mean, you name it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, duped, blown up, sabotaged. A couple of dozen of them died. Hmm. Dozens of them, dozens of them were injured. They, some of their planes crashed. A lot of these planes crashed and burned. I'm speaking to Boaz Devere author of Saving Israel. You can find more information on Twitter or Facebook at Boaz Devere. If you like this podcast so far, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. Please go to my Facebook page, War Scholar, to find links to interesting military history videos created by others. Please go to my Twitter page at War Scholar for links to military history news, military history archaeology news, and academic military history articles. Please check out my Instagram page, Chris Alvarez War Scholar, for photos. Please check out my YouTube channel, War Scholar 1945, for military history videos I've made. You can also sign up for my newsletter at warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com. In the newsletter, I post video and news links, as well as regular updates on new military history books being published. If you're interested in other kinds of history, such as film, TV, books, and comic books history, including science fiction, fantasy, and horror themes, or the history of outer space exploration, you can find the links to my other podcasts and associated book lists at historyrabbithole.com. That's rabbit as in the animal. Historyrabbithole.com. Thank you for your support. And now back to the podcast. So before they started, how big was... Was there any sort of air force to speak of? And at the end, what had they created? Israel had no air force. They they didn't even call it an air force. Instead, what they had was an air service made up of propeller planes. Mm-hmm. Um, 
um, that they use for reconnaissance. And that, that was about it. Like, they'd go up and take photos, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, no, they didn't even have an official Air Force. Uh, by the time they were done, these guys had... And, and, and they really made the Air Force. They didn't just create it. As I said, they fought as part of it. And, and the Air Force was, even though it was headed up by a couple of Israelis, it was really mostly American. It was English-speaking officially. Everything was in English. All the community, all the official communication, even by the Israelis, in the Israeli Air Force through the First World was done in English. Mm-hmm. And by the time they were done, they had created what is one of the best Air Forces on the planet. Mm-hmm. Some might argue Pan for Pan may be the best. And they started a tradition that's carried on to this day where Israel has never lost a dogfight. Okay. Yeah, because one question I had is, you know, apart from just bringing in planes, you know, you need all the facilities to manage them, to repair them, spare parts, you know, um, the pilots who you said it was these guys, that sort of thing. So it's a lot more than just planes. Oh, yeah, it's a lot more than than just planes. Although, of course, each plane is is its own story. So they brought these big transport planes, but they also brought in fighter planes Mm -hmm. and they brought in bombers. Bombers were key. Hmm. And Al Schwemel had managed to purchase four B-17s in the United States from private private uh, arms dealers. Mm-hmm. Um, one, well, three were from from a private arms dealer. I'm sorry, one was actually from the U.S. Air Force. Not sure it was called the U.S. Air Force yet. You know, in for a while it was called the U.S. Army Air Forces. Right. Then they switched it. I'm not sure if by that, but but he he bought one from them and it was held up in Tulsa, Oklahoma. They figured out who it was going to, and despite accepting his payment, decided to ground it and, and not release it. So he went to Tulsa, Oklahoma, to the base, along with a pilot friend of his, and they were wearing their ATC uniforms, and they got in. As luck would have it, there was some party going on that night, and, and the gatekeeper said, are you going to the party? And I said, yes, and he pointed <laughs> in, in that direction, and it was raining. That helped, too, and they found that they had a friend on the inside who told them where the B-17 was and had filled it with with uh, with uh, gas, mm-hmm. with, with enough to, to fly, with fuel, with fuel, with enough fuel to fly. Mm-hmm. And they went in, found the plane, which was marked off, and, 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 you know, I think it said something like seized by U.S. government. Anyway, no one was supposed to come near it, much less get in. They got in, and uh, even though neither one of them had ever flown a B-17, they flew it away. They took off wow. with the... Air traffic controlling uh, controller screaming at them, stop, identify yourself. But mm-hmm. they just have kept going. So, you know, they did what they had to do. And each plane was a story. Each, each plane was an adventure. And yes, they brought the planes, but you're right. They set up the whole, they set up a whole air force, mm-hmm. a whole infrastructure and brought in the pilots and trained the pilots to be able to fly all of these planes and, and gave rise, by the way, not just to the Israeli air force, but also to Elal, Israel's national airline. Hmm. which was built by and used these planes in the beginning that they brought in, used the men, their captains, their pilots were all part of the operation. So, yeah, they, they helped build the country. So, um, you know, when, when May 1948 rolled around, did the Arab militaries take their time pushing into, you know, the newly established Israel? Because it seems like at that point they could have just rushed in, but did they take their time, you know, where – you know, within that May to whenever time frame, you know, what was the Israeli military trying to do? How did they hold off? 
So, you know, Israel in, in May of 1948 had 60,000 60, soldiers, mm -hmm. but it only activated 20,000 because it only had enough weapons for 20,000. But the operation members, Al Schwimmer and his men, started to bring in the weapons um, really as early as April. So they were already starting to bring it in, mm. uh, the weapons, and, and, and things were getting better by the day, and especially after Israel was created, it became easier, right? Because you were no longer just flying into a land uh, controlled by someone else, and, which made it more, more tricky, but this time Israel controlled some of the air bases, and, and so the, the, they accelerate the, the air track. They called it also the Air Transport Command, the Israeli Air Transport Command, uh, this airlift, humongous airlift of all these weapons from Czechoslovakia. Mm -hmm. And and so Israel uh, was no longer just facing two or three days of battles. It could hold on longer. Now, what they knew from the beginning, it was true, is that these 60,000 men lacked weapons, but they didn't lack everything else that you want in fighters. Many of them were experienced. Mm. You know, you got to remember they've been fighting for years, right? They've been fighting the Arabs and the British for years. Many of them had joined the British military during World War II and fought for the British during World War II mm. in North Africa, in, in different places. And so they had gained a lot of war experience. They were able-bodied men. They were desperate. They were passionate. They were good fighters. Mm -hmm. So once you start to put weapons in their hands, they became a tough opponent, mm -hmm. very tough opponent. And so they did a good job of slowing down the Arabs. That's one. Number two, I think you're right, though, at the same time. Yes, the Israelis slowed it down. But at the same time, I do believe that to some degree, they were overconfident. Mm -hmm. Everyone, there wasn't anyone on the planet other than just a few Israelis and these guys who were part of the operations who thought Israel had a chance. They thought this is ours. We, they, they thought that we could just walk in. Mm -hmm. And so they were complacent. And, you know, they reach, they, they had it for the, the Egyptians, for instance, had a really good plan. They thought, let's just get to Tel Aviv, choke off Tel Aviv and win the war. Tel Aviv at the time was everything. Unlike today, where you got a few major cities, including Jerusalem, where the government is back then in 1948, really the Jewish community had Tel Aviv. Everything was there. Mm -hmm. The government, the military, the business, every, all aspects of the culture were in one place. So if you choke it off, if you rip, if you yank that heart out, the rest will die, you know? Mm -hmm. And so they kind of made a beeline. They sent a division of 10,000 troops and about 80 or 90 tanks, almost almost in a beeline direction to Tel Aviv. But along the way, either the Israelis attacked parts of the division or they, being overconfident, stopped a few times and went into battle, mm -hmm. uh, a couple of which took longer than expected. But they still reached the outskirts of Tel Aviv on May 29th, two did, weeks after the war. Slower than they probably should have, mm -hmm. but still, within two weeks, they were a day away from destroying Israel. With with any kind of air force? Ah, what they really benefited from, the Egyptians and Syrians in particular, but then, of course, all the Arabs benefited from it, is until May 29th, they had total control of the skies. They really had no opposition. They just flew in the sky, and they took advantage of it. So their Spitfires and, and Dakota bombers would fly into Tel Aviv every day and bomb the civilians and fire at the civilians, killing them. Mm. Uh, wherever there were battles around, around the country, you know, they gave really good support to their ground forces. And so 
they were winning at that point. And then they stopped on May 29th because the bridge that they needed to cross over was destroyed by the Israelis. No big deal. They were building a task bridge, a temporary bridge, and, and resting for the night, planning to continue their advance the next morning. Mm-hmm. But lo and behold, the operation members had brought in four fighter planes. Now, they couldn't fly the fighter planes to Israel directly for various reasons. So they had to take them apart, place them in their transport planes, fly them to Israel that way, and then reassemble. And the reassembly take, took a few days. But as luck would have it, they were finished with four of them by May 29th. They had five pilots that they had trained. And those, at that point, four pilots and those four Messerschmitts attacked the Egyptian division that night Hmm. and stopped the Egyptians from advancing. Not, by the way, because they caused any sort of physical damage. They caused some physical damage, you know. By their own estimate, they might have killed 50 or 60 troops might have blown up two or three or four tanks, but you're talking about a 10,000 troop division. Mm-hmm. They could have advanced. After, I mean, you know, you lose even 1%, 10%, let's say. It wasn't anywhere near that. But even if you mm-hmm. lose 10% of your power, you still have 90% of it. You continue. This is war, but they didn't. They were so psychologically scarred because they didn't know that Israel had an air force, mm-hmm. and, and it scaled them, and it threw them off. And that was it. They, that, that, they never advanced an inch further than that. That was it. It was over. And it was after that, that was the turning point, that Israel started over the next few days and weeks to turn the tide around and survive and then eventually thrive. Hmm. Ironic that it would be Israelis using German Nazi planes to fight a, a British-backed Arab military you know, to win their independence. Uh, the ultimate irony, and I'm glad you brought it up. We haven't spelled it out for your listeners yet. And yes, so there's a global arms embargo. Only one country is willing to sell the Jews weapons. Mm-hmm. Czechoslovakia. What weapons? Lo and behold, these operation members come to Czechoslovakia to uh, a couple of places that were used for this, but one in particular is called Jates. That was the home base. They used the code name Zebra for it. They come to Zebra, very communist at the time. They put them up in the Stal- Stalingrad Hotel. Um, but they look at the weapons and they discover what my grandfather discovered. These were Nazi surplus weapons. Mm-hmm. During World War II, at some point, when Germany was being bombed night and day by the Allies, they moved their arms factories to Czechoslovakia. And Czechoslovakia became the man- main manufacturer of weapons for the Nazis. They manufactured Mauser uh, rifles, machine guns, bullets, uh, you name it, and, and Messerschmitt planes. Mm. So that's what they sold the Israelis. They sold them Nazi weapons, <laughs> Messerschmitt planes, etc. Yeah. That, that's what they ended up. Yeah. So so you have a you have mostly Americans, right? Who, who allies? They were allies with the British fighting. Really, the British, in a sense, or the British protectorates, and in some cases, as I mentioned, actually the British themselves, mm-hmm. they're flying Spitfires, which were the planes that the Allies used to a large degree during the war, mm-hmm. and yet they're flying Messerschmitts. And and another, perhaps, irony, um, I don't know how you'd want to take it, but I'm sure there was slave labor used for some uh, some part of the manufacturing during the war of these weapons, you know, slave labor, perhaps Jewish, you know, or others. 
contributed to it. And now these weapons, you know, moved on to help um, achieve Israel's independence. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Some will sell plus. Uh, incredibly, the, the Czech, you know, they had these factories, right, that the Germans had built. Mm-hmm. And even after the war, the Czech had continued to manufacture these weapons. Mm-hmm. So a lot of these weapons were actually still very much using the same German template. They were still Mauser, let's say, Mauser rifles. Mm-hmm. But a lot of them were even manufactured after World War II still. Uh, okay. Um, you know, the Czech were desperate for dollars, uh, desperate to sell weapons to anyone. So when they sold weapons to the Jews, mm-hmm. at the very same time, they also sold them to the Syrians. The Syrians had a lot large purchase. Mm. But, but because the Israelis were in Czechoslovakia, they found out about it. In the Syrians' case, they were going to send it by ship, not mm. by a plane. Israelis discovered where the ship was and uh, blew it up. Mm. Okay, yeah. <laughs> and all the weapons uh, went down to the bottom of the Mediterranean. Mm. Okay. So I'm sure that a lot of the um, facts that we haven't talked about that you've alluded to are in the book. Yes, so I- so I'd like to turn to how um, how you did the research for the book. Can you talk about the resources you used um, for it? Yeah. So first and foremost, primary sources. I traveled the world and uh, I ended up interviewing close to 30 people, mm-hmm. um, mostly operation members. I was lucky enough to speak with them before they died because, I, you know, many of them were in their 80s and 90s and I would go and spend several days at a time with each one of them in some cases more than that Uh, for instance um, Shelly Eichel one of the pilots who who lived in at the time in South Florida I interviewed him on camera four times each time a minimum of four hours between four and five hours but I also spent countless days with him you know uh, taking him out for bagels and speaking with him. I, I was on the phone with him. So I spent many, many days with each one of these people over the years, mm-hmm. uh, getting as many details as I possibly could, checking facts, uh, revisiting stories, uh, running one story that I held here by them to see how valid it was or what they knew about it, etc. Mm-hmm. And then in addition to all these interviews, I obviously interviewed historians and family members, etc. Luckily for me, the FBI was serious about tracking these guys and, and kept very detailed notes and reports about them. Hmm. So I had access to thousands of pages of reports from the FBI with lots of details. Wow. Um, that was really helpful. And then, of course, they, they put them on trial. There were four trials, four trials that took place after this, putting a total of 12 of the key operation members facing all sorts of charges, as, as I mentioned, and so the court transcripts were, were also very helpful to me as well, in addition. Mm-hmm. So, you know, all this primary kind of, of, of material, sometimes, you know, you search, you, you, you look, you explore, and, and you come across documents that are key. For instance, flight logs. Flight logs were very helpful to me. So one flight log shows that after they brought these B-17s to Czechoslovakia, they brought everything to Czechoslovakia because, you know, the B-17s were decommissioned, so they needed to be rebuilt, fixed up, and and made into military machines again. And then after they were done with that, they were going to just fly them to Israel. But the flight log shows that they made a stop in Cairo. So they made a detour into Cairo to drop a few bombs on the King's Palace there. 
Oh, <laughs> okay. A different kind of stop than, than what I thought. Right. So flight logs were also very, very helpful to me. Uh, there have been some books written uh, on the periphery of this, right? There hasn't been a book specifically about this operation per se, but a couple of the people who participated wrote their own, wrote their own memoirs, for instance. Uh, those were helpful to read. Uh, there's, uh, you know, a big book in Hebrew that the Israeli Air Force put out about its own history. Mm-hmm. There was a book that I referenced that talks about the different planes that the Israeli Air Force has used before, and I can cross-reference. Um, you know, they have a lot of tables in that book that show the different planes and then where they came from and how they were used and how much they weighed. I can cross-reference that with my notes and material. So that's the kind of research that I've done. A lot of cross-referencing, checking, rechecking, going back, and being lucky enough to be able to uh, call a lot of the people who were part of the operation beyond my interviews with them or visit with them again and sit down and go over it again. Mm-hmm. But it took it took 10 years. It took 10 years to put it together. Did you um, come across any of the artifacts associated with this, any of the actual... Um, planes and stuff? Are they in museums or anything? Somehow, uh, I I was able to visit one of the Messerschmitts down in the Israeli Air Force Museum, which is down in, in the desert in Israel. Mm-hmm. And they have one of the Messerschmitts there. I was at an airfield in California with one of the operation members. And they had a plane that was very, very simple, the same type of plane that they had used, which was a C-46. Mm. A C-46, not the one that, not one that was used in Israel, but same type, same model, etc. Mm-hmm. And being at that airfield, I'm not sure how or why, but in another plane, a C-47, caught my eye. I knew Israel had also used these guys as part of the operation, also used C-47s, not as much. They were not as prominent as the C-46s or the B-17s or the Connies. But nonetheless, so there it was, and I, and I went and looked into it, and um, and the owner was there, and he had the, the history book on that plane. Mm-hmm. And I said, can I flip through it? And as it turned out, that C-47 was used in the operation, hmm. according to that log that this guy had. Okay. Unfortunately, he wouldn't let me film it or, 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 or do anything with it, but still, it, it, he owned it now. It was sold after, and so I couldn't do much. But just being able to see it, touch it with my own, you know, see it with my own eyes and touch it with my own hands, an actual play, was exciting. So, yes, I would come across such things along the way. Yeah. Was it in flyable condition? Do you know, if, I guess? Oh, yeah. He was still flying it. He was using it. Uh, he wasn't very friendly. He, he was friendly initially. Let me look at the log. But once I told him I like to film and I'm, I'm, I'm making a documentary and he became less excited and, and kind of pulled away. So I didn't get to talk to him as much as I would have liked mm. and find out what he's doing with it. But, yeah, he was he was using it clearly. Wow. What part of the research was most enjoyable? Most enjoyable to me, of course, you know, well, there's two things that I can say are most enjoyable. The first and, and most enjoyable to me has been to to spend time with these guys. Mm. So when we say the greatest generation, we believe it, but I don't know if people understand to what degree what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. You know, each and every one of these guys that I met, and I've met dozens of them by now and got to know, is just truly an extraordinary human being. Mm-hmm. I mean, they are 
the, these will, excuse my language, they will badasses, right? Mm-hmm. But the same time, can I say that? Yeah, yeah. On your show? <laughs> they, they were badasses, but at the same time, I mean, they were so humble. Mm-hmm. You know, none of them went around talking about what they did. All of them had to be convinced to talk. Some cases took me years to convince each one. Mm-hmm. And and they were so talented and smart and composed and interesting, and in many cases charismatic. Mm-hmm. And, and and they all just really cared about one thing, saving these lives. I mean, they had their own personalities and, and they had their own motivations for joining. I can give you some examples. But ultimately, they were racing to save people. Mm-hmm. And that's all they cared about, you know? They cared about the greater good. There was something bigger than them that mattered to them. And beyond that, they didn't care to take any credit. Mm-hmm. And spending time with them where I, you know, live in a different world, a totally different world. Mm-hmm. And to think about the sacrifices that these guys made. I remember one of them was telling me about his injuries from the operation. And he said, you know, my hair never really grew, really grew back right. It, it was just messed up. And he took off his his, um, his cap that he was wearing and he showed me. And, mm-hmm. and he still had this weird kind of, he still had his hair mm-hmm. for most of his head, even though he was 90 years old. But there was this weird patch on the side of his head, not a bald spot, but mm-hmm. clearly from an injury that was still there, you know, 40, 50 years later. Mm-hmm. I remember it just, it brought a tear to my eye. It was just like, wow, here's this guy, not Jewish, who, who had, again, had paid his dues during World War II. Mm-hmm. And he was back fighting for, for, not for his own people. He grew up in an anti-Semitic home in mm-hmm. Detroit. Mm-hmm. And, and here he is still injured after all these years. I think he still had a bit of a limp as a result, too. It, it was just its so touching. And I asked him, I said, why did you do it? You're not. Why did you bother? And he said, what, what, do, you, what do you mean? What, what choice? It's, mm-hmm. Of course. People were, people were going to die. Of course I, well, of course I was going to you know, risk my life to try to save them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So spending... Spending time with them was, was not just uh, the highlight of this project, but partly, honestly, uh, the highlight of my professional life. Oh. The second thing is when I screen, you know, when I screen the documentary or when I give a book talk and audience members come up to me after uh, with tears in their eyes and, and they just want to hug me. And they're not, they don't want to thank me. What they want to do is thank these guys, right? They mm. want to thank the operation members, but they want to thank them through me. Right. And... That just means a lot to me. Yeah, yeah. Um, what did you find that was most surprising in your research? Well, initially, initially, although I've, I've gotten used to it by now and I totally understand it now, the biggest shock to me was to see how antagonistic the United States world told Israel back then. Hmm. So just like most people, I've... Before I started this project, I believed that Israel and the United States were best friends forever. We know mm-hmm. we know Israel and the United States are best friends today. Mm-hmm. But I always believed they were always best friends. And I was always told that actually it was Truman that helped create the Jewish state, blah, blah, blah. Right? So I believed that. And then in doing this research and seeing that these guys actually had to evade their own government and were eventually arrested by their own government and put on trial and and that what they did was illegal when all really they were trying to do was, was allow these 600,000 folks in, in the Middle East to survive, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it was shocking to me. 
was really shocking. And, 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 and the extent of it was deep. So I'll give you an example. We mentioned that in November, November 29th, 1947, to be exact, the United States joined in the vote at the United Nations to allow splitting Palestine between the Jews and the Arabs. Mm-hmm. And, and the United States, of course, voted in favor of it. This vote, obviously, was, was the catalyst for the creation of the Jewish state. Well, the United States changed its mind soon after, regretted voting for it, and tried to have it axed. Hmm. And came up with a new plan, which the United States termed a trusteeship, which really meant the nullification of a Jewish state. Hmm. And the United States pushed this, or at least tried to push it, through the United Nations. Now, if this wasn't surprising enough, guess who stopped the United States? Guess who was in favor of a Jewish state so much so that they blocked the United States' attempt to rescind the partition plan? That's what it was called, the basically the, the vote to allow the creation of a Jewish state. It was Russia. Hmm. It was Russia initially, the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union had brought this vote in the first place. It was the Soviet Union who came up with the idea of splitting Palestine between the Jews and the Arabs. It was the Soviet Union who pushed for this, and it was the Soviet Union who blocked the United States from trying to reverse this decision. Hmm. Surprising, right? I, I, it's, it makes me see, sound as though the Soviet Union were tr- was trying to make Israel its friend against maybe Britain in the West. Absolutely. Absolutely. The Soviet Union had a plan. Mm-hmm. They needed a foothold in the Middle East. Yes, against Britain, but also against the United States, which was gaining traction in the Middle East, and for various reasons. And so, where could they go? All the Arabs at the time were firmly entrenched with the West. Mm-hmm. They had most of them close to Britain, a couple of them pretty close to France, and then Saudi Arabia was becoming very, very close to the United States, which was you know, bringing in companies and exploring for oil and building airfields, etc. And so the Soviet Union looked at the landscape and said, well, yeah, the Jews. And it made sense because the Jews in Palestine already had a society that, at least on paper, seemed similar. It was very socialistic. Mm -hmm. Israel is a socialist country. And by the way, much more socialist than what we think of in terms of, you know, Bernie, Sanders or, or, uh, or some European countries. I mean, very, very socialistic. Mm-hmm. Uh, almost, almost economically, you could argue, verging on communism. Hmm. Um, what Israel had for decades, by the way, it didn't really go away until the nineties. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and, and who built, who built this community? There were Russian Jews, hmm. right? So, so the Soviet Union thought this could be the ally. This could be the ally for them. And that, that led, to them not only pushing for the creation of Israel, but authorizing Czechoslovakia to sell Israel weapons. So why didn't the Soviet Union provide, uh, well, I guess through Czechoslovakia, they did provide weapons to Israel. First, exactly. Second, the Soviet Union could not afford to be that overt about it, Hmm. right? Uh, I don't think they were ready for such a confrontation with England and the US. I don't think they were ready at the time to go into war in the Middle East. Yeah. Especially over Israel. I mean, Stalin at the time, you know, the, the leader of the Soviet Union, he was a well-known anti-Semite. This was not out of love for the Jews. I don't think they were quite ready to go that far. Mm. But they were simply ready to take some steps to gain a foothold in the Middle East 
without leading to necessarily an all-out war with the their, their allies of two or three years earlier, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, almost kind of, of a it, 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 look. I mean, these these big empires they use proxy measures along the way. Mm-hmm. We see it all the time, whether it's a proxy war or a proxy move, and and, and Czechoslovakia was a proxy move for for the Soviet Union. And I have to remind myself that in that time period, the Soviet Union was pretty, um, pretty devastated by World War II. In fact, you know, like they also were trying to support Korea and Vietnam later and China and, and they couldn't give a whole lot to right. them either. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, David Ben-Gurion, the leader of Israel, uh, reportedly, although you, you won't find too much about this, but you'll find just enough to, to think that it might have happened. So I say reportedly. This is not my own reporting now. So everything I've told you so far is my own reporting, and I feel very confident in, in what I've said because, again, I spend so much time and I triple, quadruple check everything, and I'm always ready to admit when I'm wrong and throw it away. And so I, I'm, I'm fairly confident in everything I've told you so far. What I'm about to tell you next is not my own reporting. It's something I came across in reading. It's not well known, but that David McGuion actually even received an official but secret overture from the Soviet Union to partner and become a collaborator with that country at a time when Israel was desperate. Israel had no allies. Yes, they had the operation that brought in the weapons. Yes, they now had an air force. They were winning the war. All of that is positive, but long term, they still faced an uphill battle. Mm-hmm. And they needed money. They needed weapon long uh, weapon support long term. Uh, they needed diplomatic support, right? So they could have used an ally like the Soviet Union but David Ben-Gurion said no. He said no. Hmm. And again, uh, now, I'm, now I'm venturing into speculation hmm. on my own part. My speculation as to why he said no. I think one of the main reasons, well, to me, really, the, the two main reasons can be summed up in one word, and that is America. Hmm. He still held hope that America would become Israel's ally. Hmm. And even though, yes, economically they were different, in every other way, Israel was much more similar to America than the Soviet Union, a democracy, a Western democracy, etc., right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that was something he was willing to hold out for, even if it was going to take a long time. And second, he did not want to put the American Jews in a tight spot. Mm-hmm. He, he, he believed Israel was the land of, of all Jews and needed to help all Jews around the world. Plus, the American Jews were so helpful, obviously, to Israel's creation. Mm-hmm. He did not want to put them in a tight spot. Imagine how American Jews would have felt and what what they would have done if Israel suddenly becomes part of the Soviet bloc during the Cold War. Would have, would have put the American Jews in a terrible position. So, so that's my speculation as to why he didn't do it. It's interesting because it sounds, and, not, and this, you know, this mirrors what I'm thinking, that American Jewish Americans as a group had more sway and power over Israeli foreign affairs than the Soviet Union, an entire nation did, in a sense. Well, um, at least in theory, I don't think that the American Jews were necessarily actively whispering in, in David Ben-Gurion's ears, right. but David Ben-Gurion took him into account. I right. think he, and again, my own this is my own speculation, that he... He considered their position and did not want to put him in a bad spot. And also, as I said, really felt like, you know, Israel does not belong. Yes, we share maybe economically some 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 ideals, but, mm-hmm. but he knew that otherwise Israel really didn't belong with the Soviet Union. 
And so it must have been painful, but he said no. And Israel remained without an ally for, for a while, uh, until the mid-50s, where France became Israel's ally, actually. Were there many um, Jewish Soviets who, um, how, how much Soviet Jewish support was there during this time period for the military side and for the, for the national, for the nation of Israel as a whole? Do you know? Well, I mean, <laughs> Russian Jews started to come to Palestine in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the leadership inside of Israel was made up of, of Russian Jews. Mm-hmm. You know, once Russia entered World War II, and, and Stalin really exerted his power, his evil power, you can even say, right? I mean, mm-hmm. the man responsible for killing 20 million of his own people. Mm-hmm. I don't think we heard much from Russian sectors of any kind other than the official line, mm-hmm. right? It was, it was kind of a a beast that spoke in, in one voice, Stalin's. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I, 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 you know, at that point, I, I, in, the, in, in the 40s and in the 50s, you know, the Soviet Union was was pretty good about speaking in one voice. Mm-hmm. Often a terrifying voice, but one voice. Hmm. You didn't hear a lot of dissension at the time, I don't think. Right. Not expertise, but I, I don't think you did. No, I don't. I don't think so either. Um, so I know with historical research, there are always, you know, questions that remain. But was there a particular question that was very difficult for you to get an answer to that you wanted to and either you never did or maybe you finally did achieve success? Yeah. So um, one of the pilots, I mentioned him, Shelley Eichel, mm-hmm. and I had mentioned earlier in our conversation that some of these aviators stayed on in the official roles after World War II ended. So one of them, Shelley Eichel, his role when World War II ended was to help transfer the airport in Cairo to the Egyptians. The Americans had taken over the airport and used it during the war, and now they wanted to make some improvements and train the Egyptians on on using it and give it to them. And that was that was his job, to be a key member and officer of the team that, that did that. Mm-hmm. And being in Cairo, after World War II, he befriended British officers. And, you know, he would go to their lounge and have drinks with them. And they told him, as, as the years went on and, and this idea of a Jewish state was coming, that if Israel was to be created, that they would fight against it. They, and he was confused. And what he, yes, that they themselves, that they themselves would fly planes as part of the Arab effort to try to prevent this, the state of Israel. Hmm. And that was shocking to him. That caused him to go and join the operation and to go against it. So he was convinced that the British did do that. Now, here's what I've been able to establish. Was I able to really fully establish that the British did this? No. But So what I was able to come up with is minimal, right? And, and, and then readers and, and and other historians can draw their own conclusion. Who knows? Maybe one day I'll be able to fully establish it. We know that on the last day, yes, there were dogfights between British pilots and Israeli Air Force. Mm-hmm. We know that for a fact. Israelis won 5-0. We also know that the Israelis shot down a reconnaissance plane that was flown by the British. So there was a reconnaissance plane that the Israelis would see fly over Israel every day gathering information, and Israel didn't have 
the the ability to shoot it down until Al Schwemmel brought in two P-51s, jet planes from the United States, he smuggled them in. Hmm. And one of them was able to go up high enough hmm. and shoot down this reconnaissance plane. Hmm. That was British. So we know that at least six planes were shot down. Six Royal Air Force planes were shut down. So they were active in the war, right? But beyond that, here's what I know, is that the pilots told me that they would go up, when they would go up in the sky and take on, particularly the Egyptians, they noticed they, that they would have one of, one, of, one of two different types of pilots that they would go up against. Mm-hmm. One would be the typical, what they thought of as the typical Egyptian. And to them, the typical Egyptian was a bit of a show-off. It would be a pilot who would do acrobatics and, and really try to like have uh, uh, an intimidating factor and, and fly above them and below them and, 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 and try to scare them off, and, but really wasn't much of a fighter. And they would either shoot it down or, or eventually chase it away. Mm-hmm. The other type that they felt uh, they would go up against was a very skilled pilot, very, very skilled, reminded them of British and American pilots from World War II. They were not show-offs. They were very efficient. They were cutting. They were fast. They were dangerous. Hmm. They didn't lose to them, but they could have, and they rarely shot them down. Really didn't. If, if they were, in fact, manned by British pilots, they didn't shoot them down until the last day. Hmm. So some of them thought, hmm, could they have been flown by British pilots? We don't know. Shelley Eichel was convinced that the answer is yes. Some of these pilots who went up and, and did this think, yeah, probably. But I don't have enough historical journalistic proof to say it. Mm-hmm. Hmm. That's interesting. Was there anything you discovered that had a very strong emotional impact on you? I know you mentioned a few things, um, but what was the, the most powerful thing, either positively or negatively? Well, I mean, one emotional thing for me on, on the negative front is, is to see the victims. And there, there's so many. I mean, look, the Palestinian Arabs were also victimized by this, you know. Let's face it. The Palestinian Arabs were told by the Arab neighbors that they were going to get the whole land. And they were so confident that they were going to do it so fast. They convinced many of them, hundreds and thousands of them, to leave their homes, telling them, you'll come back after we get the land for you. Mm-hmm. And they never came back. They're in refugee camps to this day. Mm. You know? Yeah. That's sad. That's really sad. And and these Palestinian Arabs, they, they didn't do anything. I mean, they, at least the civilians, certainly, you know, there were terrorists and fighters who, who, who are a different story. But so many civilians who just lived on their land and had been there for hundreds of years. And, you know, suddenly there's all this upheaval. And I can totally understand their side, mm-hmm. you know? I very much support the state of Israel and believe that it's it's the right thing to do mm-hmm. uh, to have a state for the Jews. Absolutely. At the same time, I can totally understand the other side and see how the Palestinians felt cheated and to some degree abused. And suddenly, you know, when they left their homes and were not able to come back and allow refugee camps, I think that's sad. It, it's sad to see the volunteer Americans and, and British and South Americans who, who came to Israel and were part of the operation who lost their lives. Mm-hmm. You know, young men at the prime of their life, some of them already married, some of children, uh, 
putting everything on hold and, and then dying. Mm-hmm. Dying in explosions or, or, or crashing and then getting killed by the enemy, sometimes in horrific ways. It's sad. It's, it's really sad to think about that. It, 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 I think about them. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, would I have done that? If I had just come back from World War II, would I have put everything on hold and risked everything, including my citizenship, to do this? I don't know. Mm-hmm. I like to say yes, but I, I have to be honest. I, I don't know. Yeah. I don't. So I, I, I love these guys and I respect them and I learn a lot from them. And yet at the same time, they almost seem like otherworldly to me, like mm-hmm. they really were of a different generation. And that maybe is the positive thing is for me to know that I at least got to to witness them, not quite firsthand, but as close as possible to that and get to know them and, and at least walk away with some lessons that, you know, if something is right, then it's worth fighting for. Mm-hmm. It, it seems that the international community has um, a lot of uh, responsibility for what happened, um, you know. They wanted to wage almost proxy combat and and not really come together. That seems like part of the reason that things happened the way they happened. Definitely. I mean, no question. I mean, the colonialist impact uh, is probably with us to this day. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of it was random. A lot of it was just based on self-interest, sometimes very short-term self-interest. And, um, and we see it all over the world, not just in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. We have to remember, and I think we're starting to understand that, that things don't just end. No. <laughs> there are consequences. There are traumas. There are impacts that stay with us, sometimes for many generations. Many generations. Yeah. You know, my, my, my grandparents were Holocaust survivors. I just heard uh, today on a, on a podcast. I was listening to a podcast, and they were talking about how this trauma can be passed down through DNA. Hmm. Interesting. You know, that, that, yeah, yeah, that the impact that my grandparents suffered during the Holocaust is in me to this day. I inherited it. Hmm. And so, you know, when we look, for instance, at what's happening today on, on several fronts, but take COVID, for instance, that's traumatic. That, mm-hmm. What we're going through, the lockdown, the deaths, the scariness, the uncertainties, the seclusion, all of that, right? I mean, that's causing trauma for people. And, and God willing, we'll come out of it, there'll be a vaccine, and we'll go back to, quote, normal. Mm-hmm. But the trauma may stay with us, and, and, and I think we have to face that and deal with it. Um, same thing when we look at these protests. They didn't, they didn't happen overnight. Mm-hmm. This is the result of, of decades of frustration, yeah. you know? And, and I think we have to factor that in if we want to resolve these issues. Yeah, that's, uh, I have to look deeper into that. That's an interesting idea, concept. Yeah. So apart from adding to the historical record, what do you hope the book will do? Inspire young people. When I screen the documentary and give book talks on college campuses, at some point I look at the audience, uh, often mostly students, and I say to them, look, these guys, meaning the operation members, when they did this, they were in their 20s. Mm. You are in your 20s, (laughs) many of you, or soon you will be. Mm Mm-hmm. What are you going to do? Yeah. What are you going to do? Right? Yeah. You're in your 20s. You have the energy. You have the passion. You have the invincibility to maybe do something that, that people later on in life find more difficult. So, so yes, 
We want you to go out there. We don't need you to go and fight a war for us. Thankfully, right now, you know, for all the problems that we have, as far as I know, there's no major war taking place right now, even anywhere on the planet. Mm-hmm. You know, we are lucky in many measures. Yeah. But we still need our young people to change the world. Mm-hmm. It's their world. They need to make it a better place. And these guys, these operation members, did that. They did that. Mm-hmm. Just step forward and, and, and act. Step uh, forward and act. And we are seeing some young people starting to do it, you know. Yeah. For many years, uh, you know, I teach I teach college. And, and so I've been on, on a college campus now for, uh, I think, 16 years now. And, you know, I saw very few protests for a long time, especially from students. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I, I saw very little kind of passionate activism among them. Some, I'm not going to say none, but but not like you might expect. Right. And I think that's starting to come back. I think I think that spirit, that 60s spirit is, is coming back. And I think ultimately it, it's good for society. They, these young people can take us to a, a new and better place. Well, it's, they're the ones who are inheriting it, so... <laughs> You know, right. it's going to be their right. place completely. So, <laughs> Exactly. So when I think about ma- massive problems, including climate change, mm-hmm. I, I hold hope, especially as I start to see that spark, that spark of activism among young people. Mm-hmm. And, and the other thing, also, you asked me about the book and its relevance. Mm-hmm. You know, these guys faced a novel problem and they had to be innovative. In every step of the way, they had to be innovative in how they solve that problem, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and they had to think outside the confinement of what was expected. No one expected the Jews to be fighting with Nazi weapons, mm-hmm. but they did that. They made that happen, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, when they couldn't leave this country because the FBI was preventing them and grounding their planes and saying, these planes cannot fly, they went and convinced the Panamanians to allow them to create a national airline for Panama, transferred all these planes into Panamanian registry and took off. Yeah. That's a kind of innovative thinking that they displayed, thinking in action. And that's what we need today. Mm-hmm. We have to approach the problems that we face from many different angles and fresh perspectives and, and try the unexpected and be inventive to emerge victorious. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is this re, this book sounds really interesting to read. A lot of interesting stuff going on. Thank you. The the one criticism I have to tell you and warn your your uh, listeners. The one criticism I've gotten, I think it's a very fair criticism, is that it has too many characters, and it does. Yeah. It has a lot of characters, and yet you know as many characters as it has, it, it could have had twice as many. <laughs> so I, I still kept it. But yes, it it has a lot. It has a protagonist, Al Schwimmer. Mm-hmm. It has several other characters who play pivotal roles like the chief pilot Sam Lewis for instance so Henry Greenspan who was the liaison with the mafia mm. um, yeah so <laughs> you know I, look I mean you can follow the book believe me but just be aware there are a lot of characters for what it's worth it's not a novel where you have two or three main characters it's, it's a yeah. historical book with uh, with several key people playing key roles and some of it gets complicated but i wrote it in a journalistic style and and washed away the jargon and tried to make it as accessible as possible so mm-hmm. it's the only criticism i get because everybody else and, and what else i'm getting is yeah even when there are too many characters 
I was able to really follow the story and get swept up in it. Mm -hmm. Did you have any difficulties getting the book uh, finished or published? And I know it took a while, but anything apart from that? You know, um, it's uh, the publisher is, is an imprint of Roman and Littlefield, the big publisher. Mm. And I got a call from them one day saying they had seen my documentary, A Wing and a Prayer, which I'd made for PBS. And A Wing and a Prayer is now available on, on Amazon Prime. If anyone has Amazon Prime, they can watch it there for free. It's also available on Ruko mm -hmm. for free, actually. It's one of the free offering. And Plex, also Plex has it now for free. Okay. A Wing and a Prayer. And they had seen it, and it was simple. You know, they said, we want you to write the book version of it. Okay. And, and I said, yes. I said, yeah, yes, because the film I made for PBS, as proud as I am of it and as well as it has done, was one hour. I could only fit in so much, you know. Yeah. And so I was excited to write a 300-page book and be able to tell the, the full story. Mm -hmm. Very excited. Uh, in terms of finishing it, well, to be completely transparent with you, I signed the agreement and forgot about it. <laughs> and when I say forgot about it, I literally forgot about it. I get an email one day from my editor asking how it's going, and I had to do a double take. What's this? What is he talking about? <laughs> oh, yeah, a book. So I went and I realized as I plotted it out that in order to complete the 90,000-word book, I had to write a 1,000 words a day <laughs> Oh wow! for seven days a week oh, to wow. meet my deadline. Yeah. So I did it. Some days I wrote less, so the next day I wrote more. But I did it. I wrote, I wrote 90,000 words. Do you have a writing project you're working on now? I'm, I'm finishing up some documentaries right now. Okay. Uh, one of them is about a French business consultant who goes out to kill his father's Nazi executioner. Hmm. He wants to find the Nazi who killed his dad and kill him. Hmm. And this is so a documentary. One. Yeah, that's one documentary. It's called Cujot. Hmm. And another documentary I'm, I'm completing called Discovering Gloria is about a highly innovative inner city school teacher who taught science, reading and math using hip hop, which she herself did not like, but understood really connected with those students, mm -hmm. uh, movement, chanting. She introduced these elements. Today, we see a lot of that. Oh, not a lot, but we see more of that. She was a pioneer in introducing these elements. So I'm, I'm finishing up a documentary about hell methods, which really resonate today. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you have a, a web page or social media where people can follow your work? Yeah, on, on Twitter and on Facebook, uh, you can find me, Boaz Dvir, B-O-A-Z-D-V-I-R. Pretty simple. Mm -hmm. uh, be glad to hear from you. Uh, anytime you can contact me on Twitter or on, or on Facebook. There are Facebook pages for these Documentaries, A Wing and a Prayer has a Facebook page, and so does Cujo uh, already in Discovering Gloria. Mm -hmm. So I'd, I'd, I'd love to hear from your listeners. Okay, cool. So um, that's all the questions I have. Do you have any final thoughts or words? My last thoughts is, is to explore your own history, to really talk to your family members, especially, you know, your parents, grandparents, uncles, you know, your older relatives about their history. I found, you know, I've been a nonfiction storyteller now for more than 30 years, and I've interviewed hundreds, who knows, maybe thousands of people by now. Mm -hmm. And it's not an exaggeration, and I'm not just saying it to be nice or something. I really have found 
I, not that I believe, yes, I believe it, but I found that every single person I ever talked to has an interesting story to tell. You would be amazed. You would be amazed what you will discover when you really sit down with someone and talk to them about their lives. Ask open-ended questions about their lives, about their experiences. Don't ask for their opinions. Everybody has opinions. Ask for what they've gone through. Mm-hmm. Ask what shaped them. Yeah. That yields a much more interesting conversation. Yeah. So I really urge your listeners to do that. Yeah, I agree. You can try you can try to, that, to do that with family members. Um, maybe you'll get good information or maybe they <laughs> you know, or maybe they don't want to share, but uh, yeah, I definitely agree that's that's an important thing to do. If they don't want to share, then I would say don't be obnoxious or too aggressive, but try again. Mm-hmm. Try again. Don't give up. If they say no once, don't give up. It's important that they tell you their story. Mm-hmm. And and you don't have to be too pushy about it, but you have to be persistent and you have to really want to hear it. And if you do that and you do it out of love, then eventually they'll tell you their story and they'll be thrilled that they did that. Yeah. My grandfather, after he told me his story, ended up writing a book. Huh. And I think being finally open about his life really changed his life. And, and really empowered him. Mm-hmm. And when I was able to go back and answer his question, and look, grandfather, this is how you ended up fighting with Nazi weapons. It, you know, it put a spark in his eye, you know? Mm. So, so that conversation, you know, got him going with his storytelling, got me going with my storytelling, and, and, and has ripple effects. Mm-hmm. So I really, really encourage pursuing that kind of a conversation with your loved ones. Yeah. So uh, thank you for speaking with me. Thank you, Chris. I really enjoyed it. Great questions. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, Military History Inside Out, please subscribe to it and rate it and review it if possible. I have many other options as well to get great military history information. You can find links to interesting military history videos on my Facebook page, War Scholar. You can find links to interesting military history news articles, military history archaeology information, and academic information on my Twitter page, War Scholar. You can find photos on my Instagram page, Chris Alvarez War Scholar. You can find my military history videos on my YouTube page, War Scholar 1945. You can also sign up for my newsletter at warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com. In the newsletter, I post additional video and news links as well as regular updates on new military history books being published. Thank you for listening. I'm speaking to Boaz Devere, author of Saving Israel. You can find more information on Twitter or Facebook at Boaz Devere. If you like this podcast so far, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. Please go to my Facebook page, War Scholar, to find links to interesting military history videos created by others. Please go to my Twitter page at War Scholar for links to military history news, military history archaeology news, and academic military history articles. Please check out my Instagram page, Chris Alvarez War Scholar, for photos. Please check out my YouTube channel, War Scholar 1945, for military history videos I've made. You can also sign up for my newsletter at warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com. In the newsletter, I post video and news links, as well as regular updates on new military history books being published. 
If you're interested in other kinds of history, such as film, TV, books, and comic books history, including science fiction, fantasy, and horror themes, or the history of outer space exploration, you can find the links to my other podcasts and associated book lists at historyrabbithole.com. That's rabbit as in the animal, historyrabbithole.com. Thank you for your support. And now back to the podcast.